This podcast episode is the recording of a seminar presented by Daniel Howard, Senior Counsel. Dan was admitted as a solicitor in 1976, called to the bar in 1988, and was appointed Senior Counsel in 2004. Dan is a former Deputy Senior Crown Prosecutor, a visiting professorial fellow, and former director of the Master of Laws program in criminal practice at the University of Wollongong School of Law. Dan is a conjoint associate professor in the School of Psychiatry at UNSW, where he has been teaching psychiatry and the criminal law in the Masters of Forensic Mental Health program since 2008. Dan was a member of the New South Wales Mental Health Review Tribunal for eight years and its president from 2012 to 2016. The third edition of his textbook with Dr. Bruce Westmore, Crime and Mental Health Law in New South Wales, is soon to be published. Dan is also the author of R. V. Malat, a case study in cross-examination. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mel. And can I just say what a pleasure it is to be here. Uh, as I was waiting down in the foyer where all of your legal aid clients wait, I was just struck and reminded uh, what an amazing uh, mass of humanity you people deal with. Difficult problems. A lot of people in that room looked like they had the weight of the world on their shoulders. And uh, if I can just uh, put in a great plug of admiration for the work that uh, you all do uh, in your jobs at Legal Aid. Um, I, I, I've always thought uh, that th probably the single biggest problem in our uh, legal profession, rule of law structure in New South Wales and, and Australia generally is the lack of access to the law. Um, I've uh, constantly been worried throughout my career over many decades at how standing on one's rights and being able to enforce them at law is getting harder and harder for the common man to do. Um, I can't afford to litigate. Uh, I don't know how many people in this room could afford to litigate. Uh, but the fact that you exist and uh, certainly uh, alleviate uh, to a certain extent that problem uh, is absolutely fantastic. And um, you know, before I move on to the next place, I, I hope to see uh, a vast improvement in access to the law. Um, but I, I do honestly think um, uh, it's one of the serious problems we have. And people lose respect for the law when they can't... Um, can't invoke it uh, to help them. Um, so what you all are doing is a fantastic uh, help to that, that problem. Um, okay, well look, today I uh, have titled this lecture Some Reflections on the Art of Being an Advocate. Um, I didn't really want to uh, get lost in the byways of the Evidence Act and, and specifics of case law and that sort of thing. I thought it might be a little more interesting uh, just to reflect on a few aspects of being an advocate. And I'm going to try and bring to bear some of the experiences that I've had and just share them with you. Um, and you know, when you get to be my age, you, can, uh, you, you tend to want to reflect more than sort of panic about uh, too much in the way of specifics. But we'll get down to some specifics. But um, I think one of the valuable things I can do for you is to pass on some reflections gained from you know, over four decades uh, practicing law. Um, so, 
Now I'm told this will change the slide. There you go. The first thing uh, I wanted to talk about was managing yourself. Um, I think this is something that is under-discussed uh, in the work that we do and amongst our peers. Um, managing yourself is, is the first thing you have to do to be an effective advocate. Um, and I say it's, it's probably the keystone of, of the whole game. Um, be true to yourself. Uh, look, I think that just uh, goes without saying. Um, you don't want to uh, compromise your principles. Um, you need to be uh, an officer of the court and abide by all the ethics of your profession. Um, and you need to sleep well at night. Um, you also don't want to mold yourself into an angry character who's uh, uh, cynical and, and all the rest. Um, be true to yourself. Um, try to enjoy what you're doing. I know that's hard when you're uh, time poor, as so many of us are these days. Um, but uh, if you can enjoy what you're doing, and uh, I, I think you'll enjoy it more if you're true to yourself, um, then all the better. Time. Uh, time management and time, just the availability of time is critical to the work that we do. Um, if I look back over the years of my uh, life in the law, uh, if, if I think and reflect on any things that went awry or that I could have done better or you know, things that in, in terms of a, an outcome didn't turn out as well as I would have liked them to, 90% um, of the time it was because I was short of time. It was because I hadn't had time to look at that extra case or I hadn't had time to really think through the deep structure of the case and come to grips with what it really was about. And um, I know in our busy lives, and particularly the sort of work that you do, um, we are time poor. It's just a fact of life. And I think to be a good advocate, you've just got to find the time. Now, does that mean taking everything home with you and working till two in the morning? No, it may sometimes mean that. But um, it does mean managing your practice and also when you've got a case that you think needs more time than your typical case, and we all get those, you've got to tell your supervisor uh, or whoever uh, that you need extra time for this. You know, you can't do the bail list as well as this case this week. You just need time to look at it and reflect and so on. So, I know that's a big ask when um, you know, you're in a public service position and you're, uh, you're doing an incredibly busy job. But just remember, the mistakes that you will regret will almost always happen because you're short of time. So manage your time, value your time, and don't let others steal your time from you. Um, anyway, that's, I think, such an important uh, lesson for, for advocates. Uh, your personal and family life, uh, don't neglect those. I mean, I've uh, had cases where I've um, been away from home for three or four weeks. Um, I did a mutiny trial many years ago in Fiji. That was difficult. But, uh, you know, we managed it. And uh, you've got to look. At, and one of the things I did was had my wife come over and we, we spent a long weekend while the trial was running. I got the Monday off and uh, it was lovely. So. You know, you've got to try and manage uh, family and your personal life. Uh, and that's ultimately more important. Um, so you've got to look after that. Your physical and mental health, don't forget that. Um, 
I did a case a number of years ago on Norfolk Island, a fairly prominent murder case. They don't have many of them over there. And it was really hard work. I remember being up till four o'clock in the morning, um, two or three nights in a row, just reading the transcript and trying to get into the detail and the, you know, what, is, what do these answers mean and how can I manage this the next day? And there were legal arguments along the way and all the rest. And that's difficult, but um, you know, you make up for it by sleeping in when you can. Um, so look after that. Your mental health, uh, this is something that we hear more about these days. Uh, don't undervalue that. If you feel stress coming on in a way that you think is harmful, uh, talk to your peers about it, talk to your supervisor about it, manage yourself, um, and keep, keep it in view, keep it in focus. And I must say in my uh, life on the Mental Health Review Tribunal, um, I can see uh, you know, the effects of what happens if you don't look after your mental health. Um, I remember uh, myself as a prosecutor going through a difficult uh, trial that was incredibly confronting um, because it involved a, um, a, a murder by the accused of his business associate uh, whose body he then left in his business associate's house and set fire to the house after he'd put the man's two young children to bed. And uh, that was really difficult. I found uh, it had never happened to me before and it had never happened since. But that night at the dinner table, I burst into tears. Now, that's never happened to me before or since, but it happened. And it was a, a wake-up call to me that, uh, you know, you've just got to manage those things. You've got to manage yourself. And um, don't undervalue that. We, got, we get very collegiate and sort of um, almost regimental, I think, at the Crown, I felt we did. And I suspect that happens at the Defenders and maybe in Legal Aid as well, that, um, you know, we can do this. It's part of the job. You've just got to take it on the chin and move on to the next thing. Um, often you can do that, but just don't uh, brush under the carpet those matters that really do Im impact on you. Um, and, uh, and, and we all know that things can impact on us. We're human beings. We're, we're designed to respond to things. So um, manage all of those things. It's terribly important. And friendships and networking, talking with your peers about things, so important. Um, debriefing, incredibly important. Again, managing your time. Find the time to do that. Don't just go home feeling angry and depressed and you know, talk to somebody. Um, now, relations with the court and court officers, incredibly important. Um, I first started prosecuting out at Campbelltown a long time ago. And um, one of the, uh, uh, I'd often had to get transcripts at the end of the day. And sometimes it really meant the typists were working back, working very hard, uh, staying back late to get the transcript ready for me, for my cross-examination or whatever the next day. And, you know, those are things that are really kind acts by people who could have stayed, you know, gone home and not stayed back. Um, and those are things you've got to appreciate and show some thanks and gratitude for. And I remember when I eventually left Campbelltown, um, I just bought a box of chocolates for the transcription unit at the court and uh, had written just a, a terrible little poem about the QWERTY board. <laughs> and... Um, and it turned out that uh, a couple of years later, two or three of those people turned up in the transcription unit in the city where I then was and 
And the sheriff's officer there who'd remembered that uh, was one of the key sheriff's officers up at uh, Taylor Square where I was prosecuting murder trials for many years. Um, and they were always willing to help and you know, nothing was too difficult. So, and it's, you don't just do this so that you'll get what you want. You do it because these are people doing a job and they're incredibly important. What they, the work they do is, is, is just as important as the work that you do. Um, and it's important to maintain those relations and to appreciate those people. Um, and if you do that, believe me, it will make the course of your life as an advocate as you move from court to court or jurisdiction to jurisdiction so much easier and, and friendlier. Um, your relations with other advocates, incredibly important. Uh, not always easy to be on great terms with your opponent, but you should try to be on uh, civil terms and professional terms with them at very least. Um, and, uh, you know, we can all think of cases where the, the person on the other side has been an absolute, you know, pain in the proverbial. Um, and it makes that week's trial or that week's case a misery. Um, but, uh, and sometimes those people are unavoidable. But we all remember those people. And uh, we know how to treat them next time we see them. And when they maybe ask for that concession or favor, if it's not something that is critical to the case that you make that concession, maybe you won't do it because of the way they've treated you. So, you know, uh, try to get on with people. You, you need to get on with people as an advocate and uh, maintain that uh, civility at, at the bar um, and in your profession. Finding your own style. Um, <clears throat> uh, this is something I think a lot of us don't spend enough time on. Um, some people uh, try very hard to be something other than who they are. They put on a, an act or they try to be aggressive or angry when in fact they're not that sort of person when they're, when they're cross-examining somebody, for example. Um, and I think the best way to find your own style is, apart from practicing, is to listen to some speeches. And believe me now with the internet, there's some incredible speeches um, on, uh, on the net that you can hear. And just by way of example, uh, I uh, told one of my classes some years ago to go and listen to all the different versions of people speaking Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And there are you know, 15, 20 different people speaking the Gettysburg Address. It's a short piece. Uh, and they're all different. They're all stylistically totally different. The best one, I think, is Johnny Cash, <laughs> who, who sang it to some beautiful riffs on his guitar. And uh, it is just magic to listen to this great, famous historical speech. Um, but the key is that it's, it, it's, it's the style. And, and if you listen to enough good speeches, you might kind of latch on to something that you feel uh, it resonates with you. Um, and I, uh, two other good speeches I'd just mention are uh, Kevin Rudd's uh, apology speech all those years ago. If you go back and listen to that on YouTube, it was one of the best speeches I've heard in Australian politics ever. Um, and uh, uh, the other one is Barack Obama, who some years ago made a speech on race and the problem of race in the United States. And it is a magic uh, piece of uh, rhetoric and advocacy. Um, so seek those things out. Um, 
be an exemplar of the legal profession. I think that goes without saying. Um, observe ethics and propriety and all of that. Uh, your credibility and your reliability is the strongest tool in your armory. That's absolutely true. Once the judges know, the magistrates know, uh, that you're somebody they can depend on, life becomes so much easier. And that will carry with you right throughout your career. Um, now, take steps to learn how it's done. Uh, look, a lot of this is, uh, this may sound trite, but really, uh, these are things that I've found over the years really valuable, just really valuable. Observe experienced advocates at work. Um, Go out of your way to take a rostered day off and go and watch some great advocate uh, doing a cross-examination or a, an evidence-in-chief or tackling an expert witness. Um, you, know, you know where the cases are and how to find them. They're in the list. They're in the newspapers. Um, go and watch them for a day. And I think this has fallen out of faith. It's just we've, we don't have enough time anymore to do these things. It's important to make time. Um, some of the best things I've learned have been just by doing that. Just taking a day off, or if I had a holiday, um, I certainly didn't do this every holiday I had, but you know, you, you go to court and watch um, and see why is this silk so good? What is it about this guy? Um, uh, and, and you'll soon work, soon work out why it is. Study detailed accounts of past criminal trials. Um, I don't know how many people here would have read any of the old notable British trials, for example. They uh, were published um, in the late 19th century and probably up till about the 1950s. Um, but uh, they are fabulous uh, instructional tools. Uh, they, they may seem old, but believe me, they have so, such a richness of information in them about how to cross-examine, when to stop questioning, when to uh, make concessions, etc. Um, read some biographies and speeches of great advocates. I've, some of the ones here I've, I've got are, uh, you know, Marshall Hall, a well-known defender in the Edwardian times. Has anybody ever read one of Marshall Hall's trials? I'd suggest probably not. Well, look, if you can find an old book uh, on Marshall Hall, Sir Edward Marshall Hall by a fellow named Marjorie Banks, that's all one word. It's a fabulous read. It is the ups and downs of a great defender, um, a man who uh, had lots of personal failings, um, was ambitious, um, and his career went up and down like um, a roller coaster. But you read some of the uh, cross-examinations and some of the addresses that he made, they're just breathtakingly good. The advocacy back then was much more um, stylized and a bit more florid. You know, people would burst into tears while they were making speeches and things like that. We don't do that anymore. But, um, you know, allowing for all of that, uh, reading a biography of a man like that gives you a real insight into uh, what it means to live the life of an advocate, to live a whole life. Of, of being an advocate. Um, Robert Jackson down here, he, he, he gave the uh, main closing address at the Nuremberg trials. He was a United States Supreme Court justice at the time and he was uh, seconded to be the chief prosecutor um, whilst he was still a Supreme Court justice to be the chief prosecutor for 
the United States at Nuremberg. And his speech is just fabulous. If you can get hold of a copy, you'll probably find it on the web. Uh, have a read of it. It's just uh, very moving, very powerful. And this was the turning point of you know, human rights law starting to uh, uh, actually be made with the uh, Nuremberg trials. Um, Norman Burkett, a very famous British, he, he was actually one of the judges at Nuremberg, but a, a fabulous cross-examiner. Um, and uh, if you can find some old trials that he was involved in, uh, they're magic to read. You learn a lot from it. Okay, learn how to master and marshal your material. Well, that's probably just common sense, and I'll come to that in a bit more detail in a minute. Practice immersing your mind in the case at hand, reflecting deeply on all of its components and using induction and deduction. Again, when we're time poor, we often don't have time to reflect deeply on, hang on, what is this case really about? What is this witness really trying to say? What inconsistencies are there in what he's saying and what the other guy's saying? And, you know, sometimes it takes time and reflection and extrapolation of your thoughts before something twigs and you think, ah, that's why he's lying. I get it now. And that sort of light bulb moment often will come only when you've got the time to reflect on the meaning of what the evidence is that you're looking at. Um, so uh, study the techniques of good communication and storytelling. Um, it's good to read fiction, good stories. I'm not suggesting that you put a fictitious case up to the court, but storytelling, the, the rhythm of a good story, uh, the structure of a good story, of how you put, put uh, ideas together in an appealing way, it's important. So um, by being a good storyteller, I'm not suggesting you make things up, but you know how to structure what it is you're saying and make it appealing. Uh, whether you're before a magistrate, a judge, um, or a jury. Um, an example of that I can, can tell you is, in, I remember once in the Court of Criminal Appeal, uh, I was appearing for the Crown, trying to uphold a conviction, and there were two, acu two accused who had appealed uh, the conviction, and one of them was represented by Counsel A, and one of them by Counsel B. Counsel A went first, and he said, Your Honours, there are 14 grounds of appeal. And you could just see the, the eyes of all the judges just <laughs> blanched. And one by one, he went through all of these 14 grounds, and the thing was still going toward the end of the day. Next day, Counsel B gets up and he says, very experienced counsel too, he says, Your Honours, I've only got two grounds of appeal, and one of them isn't much good but the other one I reckon is a beauty. Yeah. And what a wonderful way to open your uh, opening submission to the Court of Criminal Appeal, you know? It was brilliant. Um, and it was appealing, and they latched straight on it, and you could see them, you know, all light up. Oh, great, we've really only got one thing to listen to today. And, uh, and he got up, and good luck to him, you know? It was brilliant advocacy and such a contrast to what had come before. So that's good communication. Um, practice what you learn where you can. Now, this doesn't always work, but I remember 
early in my career when I was first at the bar, and I'd been a solicitor for many years as well, um, I wanted to try some of these things I'd read about. And <laughs> it didn't always work. But you'd pick the right case. You know, you'd pick a case that um, uh, either was hopeless, there was no way you were going to win it, or there was no way you could lose it. You, know, you, you might have cases like that from time to time. And maybe in those cases, you might just try a flourish or experiment with something you've never done before. And this character, Marshall Hall, up here, used to have a, a trick in front of juries, which I thought was pretty cool. He'd, he'd, if a case was finely balanced, he would, he would stand up in his address and one of his last submissions would be, ladies and gentlemen, you know the scales of justice. And he'd hold his arms out like this. He'd say, you might think this case is very evenly poised and very evenly balanced at the moment, but I want to remind you of the presumption of innocence. He'd go like this. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds very showmanship-ish, and it is, but I thought, well, I'm going to give that a go. <laughs> so I had a trial that I, I think was an absolute doozy of a loser. For, I was defending at the time. And uh, it's clearly this fellow was going down. And I thought, well, I can't do any harm at this stage to try that. So, I, you know, but I, I didn't do it quite as sort of floridly, perhaps, as I did just then. But, um, but, you know, there was no harm in it. It was nice to try it. It was good to have a go and, and test out something, a technique that I'd read about. Um, and uh, I, I, tried, I tried something different in front of a magistrate once who just said, oh, Mr. Howard, let's move on. You know? So, so uh, and, and that's what I did. But, um, so, you know, but all I'm saying is, you know, you've got to, unless you actually try these things, you're never going to learn how to use them, how to deploy them, and you've got to know how to use the arrows in your quiver. You know? So that's just a reflection. Importance of, well, I've spoken about preparation and immersion. This bewigged gentleman is a, an old silk who's long gone named Sir Jack Cassidy. And Sir Jack uh, was at the very end of his career when I was at the very beginning of mine and we knew, our families knew one another. And he sort of took me under his wing, um, which I was forever grateful for. Um, and he was telling me, he, he was involved in the late 40s in a case called Hawking and Bell. And uh, he was a famous cross-examiner in his day. He was, um, you know, Alex Shand, Jack Cassidy. They were household words back in those days, um, which, which happens less with advocates now. But back in those days, it, it used to happen. Norman Burkett, who was the English counsel I uh, showed you before, uh, the Times newspaper once did a poll of the most popular people in England, and he came in at number three. Yeah, he was a barrister. That wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't happen these days. Um, but anyway, so Jack uh, was telling me about this Hawking and Bell case. And what had happened was this uh, um, Mrs. Hawking had had a thyroidectomy, and it was a civil case. And um, to cut a long story short, the allegation was that a drainage tube had been left in, her, in the procedure, in her wound, by the surgeon who was uh, Sir George Bell, who was uh, president of the Royal College of uh, Royal Australian College of Surgeons, and Sir Jack's client, and uh, 
Mrs. Hawking had somehow excreted this uh, drainage tube, but hadn't kept it. So there was really no evidence that this had ever really happened other than her, her word for it. Um, and the whole thing turned on the medical evidence as to was it possible for uh, a, a piece of drainage tube to migrate from around the region of the thyroid through the tonsil somehow down into the stomach and then be uh, excreted. Um, it was a famous case. It went all the way to the high court. And uh, so Jack, uh, unfortunately, at the end of the day, Dr. Bell uh, went down and they accepted uh, Mrs. Hawking. But uh, to prepare for this uh, long cross-examination of thoracic surgeons, so Jack uh, went and sat in, uh, in the theater, the operating theater, uh, up in the observation loft where students of surgery would sit, uh, day after day, watching how is a thyroidectomy done? Where do the drainage tubes go? What do surgeons do with them? Just to master the facts, master the procedure. And that's uh, just an example of immersion. Now, we often don't have the luxury of the time to do that. But if your case is important enough, you'll find the time to do that sort of thing. Theory of the case, this is something lawyers and advocates talk about all the time. Um, I remember uh, for a time I was uh, one of the instructors with um, the Australian Advocacy Institute and George Hampel was very strong on this idea of you form your theory of the case and you virtually have your closing address written uh, before you uh, commence. Now, I must say, I don't, I've never really embraced that. It's a matter for, I think, each individual to decide to what extent they believe in that theory. But I think, yes, you can have a theory of the case. That's important to have a theory, something to work around. Um, and if, uh, my, this is my theorem, is that the degree of confidence and inflexibility that you have in the theory of your case is directly proportional to the strength of the evidence supporting your case. So if you've got incredible evidence, powerful evidence, irresistible evidence, then you stick to your theory of the case. You, know, you don't need to vary. But if you know, it's not that clear, uh, sometimes you need to maintain some flexibility and, and there's nothing worse than rigidly sticking to a theory that starts falling away as the evidence unfolds. And so often when you're defending, you need to maintain a degree of flexibility. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's just something to, uh, to reflect on. Uh, the law, obviously, you need to know your Evidence Act, your relevant legislation, the elements of the charge, um, know your Criminal Procedure Act, Brown and Dunn. Um, seek advice from your peers, never be afraid to do that. Um, I've, uh, I've often had Im immense help from colleagues who have been uh, unstinting with time, unstinting with uh, you know, the generosity of their professionalism um, as to you know, how do I do this? I've never done this before. You know, be candid. Admit you've never done this before and somebody will say, I'll show you how to do it. Um, anticipate what the legal issues in the case will be and liaise with your opponent where you can. Um, you can't know all the law, all the time. It just, we just don't have the room in our heads 
for that. Uh, some are better at others, but I would always try my best at the start of a case to hopefully map out every single thing that I thought could be a legal issue and make sure I had that, the law on those issues in my head so that I could meet the arguments when they came. Um, you know, make a note of them, keep that relevant section of the Evidence Act or whatever close uh, to your papers. Uh, can we go to the next one? This doesn't seem to be working. Uh, okay, managing your resources. Uh, these are some simple rules for keeping organized. Do you remember? I think they've taken it down, but the Supreme Court used to have this beautiful uh, sculpture that was somewhere over here. I couldn't find a picture of it. And it was called Order from Chaos. Does anybody remember that? It was uh, all these strands like of spaghetti steel kind of in a mess down the bottom and gradually they started all getting uniform and all coming up to a point at the top. And it was a rather lovely sculpture, but I always thought that was a nice uh, idea of what the law is all about. And I wondered though at times if they'd hung it upside down. Um, okay, the next one, thanks. Uh, ordering your brief. Um, look, uh, I, when I was doing the bar course years ago, I think it was Michael Adams, Justice Michael Adams. Some of the best advice I've ever heard at a lecture like that was, he said, look, the first thing he does when he gets a brief is he pulls it all apart and he reorders it how he wants it. Now, I don't know how many times that's happened to you. It's happened to me a lot, and I'm not being critical of those who have assembled the brief, but it may be how they would have presented it, um, or it may just be um, you know, stock standard way of putting a brief together um, that's time uh, efficient. But when you're presenting something, you want things in the order that you want to present them in. You want to know exactly where the things are when you need them, and not where somebody else wants them uh, if they, when, when they think you might need them. So I thought that was interesting. He would just you know, take out the split pin, reorder everything exactly as he wanted. Um, and something else that uh, I strongly recommend if you don't do this, if you've got a complex brief, have two lists of your statements. One is the numerical, the other is alphabetical. And so, you, and you have a list for your numerical ones that also show the witness's name and an alphabetical list showing which number they're under, which tab number they're under. So you can instantly, when a name is mentioned, you can find it exactly without having to think, oh, was that the fourth or the fifth witness I called you? It's very simple, but it's a way of organizing yourself. Dot point summaries, well, I'm sure you've all heard advocates suggest that it's best if you don't have to rely on your notes because you're always looking at your lectern and your face is down and you know, you're disengaging with the tribunal and all the rest. Um, so, uh, but don't surrender key points, dot points. Um, and certainly when I was prosecuting uh, and possibly when I was defending too, I, I, I would always keep at the top of my pile the indictment. Just simple thing to have there. So I always came back and thought, this is what I'm trying to prove. This is the charge. This is what I'm trying to prove or disprove if defending. A simple thing. Uh, taking notes, I'm sure you all have good methods of doing that, but um, you know the standard one of drawing a line down the page 
and jotting down what's said by the witness on the left-hand side and a quick note of what you want to challenge them on in the column on the right. Very simple but time-honored and tried-and-true way of doing it. Post-it notes. Um, use those to order your, uh, your notebook. Um, and miscellaneous ponderings. There's a wonderful book on advocacy and evidence by a uh, former South Australian uh, Supreme Court judge named Andrew Wells called uh, Evidence and Advocacy. And um, he had this idea of you have, while you're doing a trial, you have miscellaneous ponderings. Things occur to you on the run. Somebody says something when they're giving evidence and you think, gee, uh, that's significant. But suddenly they're moving on to the next thing. And so you've got a, if you've got a page, and I, I would always do this in my folder, I'd have a, a post-it note at the back with MP for miscellaneous ponderings. And I'd leave three or four pages. And if something like that happened, I'd open it up, scribble it down, go back to you know, the flow of the evidence on the other page. And at the end of the day, I'd have a whole bunch of interesting ideas to explore that night. Um, good technique, and, uh, and uh, that's one Justice Wells uh, I borrowed from and I recommend it highly. It's a fabulous tool because you, can, you, know, that you have those moments that you think, gee, that's fabulous, but suddenly you're onto something else. And if you don't jot it down, you'll, you'll, you might very well forget it. Knowing your bench and your opponent and the culture of your particular jurisdiction. Um, well, I'm sure many of you have practiced in different jurisdictions. And of course, the culture in the family court is very different to the culture in the criminal courts and very different to the culture before the Mental Health Review Tribunal. Um, and I can tell you, uh, the last thing you want to do in the Mental Health Review Tribunal is to cross-examine to death and blow out of the water the treating psychiatrist um, because they have a very important therapeutic ongoing relationship with the patient. There may be the odd case, very odd case where you do have to do that, but that would be really unusual, a really unusual case where a person was not mentally ill and for some Machiavellian reason was being detained against their will by a Machiavellian psychiatrist who wanted to keep them in. But I can tell you I've yet to come across one of those after hearing thousands of such cases in the tribunal. Um, so, uh, you know, your culture is very important. If you want to be respected in the jurisdiction that you're appearing in, you've got to come to grips with its culture. Um, and know your opponent. Is this somebody I can trust? Is this somebody we can sit down and work out agreed facts with or admissions for and so on? Um, and if he says this is not going to be contested, can you trust him or her that that's the case? Um, very important to know your opponent. And if you don't know them, ask somebody who does. You know, get their measure. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, evidence in chief. Um, this is an old adage, but it's true. Far more cases are won by good evidence in chief than through a you know, dazzling cross-examination. Um, your dazzling cross-examination might win 10% of cases. I don't know. I don't think anybody's ever measured it. But your other 90% of wins will be because you've marshaled your evidence and led it well through your evidence in chief. Um, so competent evidence in chief is 
you've got to get that right. Um, know where the witness's evidence fits in. Assess the witness in your own mind, their strengths and weaknesses. Do they need support or corroboration? Uh, if so, try and find some. Um, will they need to refresh their memory? If so, be ready for you know, the law and refreshment of memory and the Evidence Act provisions on that. Um, and you know, there's nothing worse than being on your feet and you just realize that the witness has completely had a blank and they've said all these wonderful things in their statement and you're thinking, oh goodness, what was that section again now that I've got to go and refresh their memory and how do I do that? So, you know, you, you, can, you can flag these things in advance if you uh, assess your witnesses in advance and, you know, obviously you need to know your law about the Evidence Act and refreshment of memory and credibility rule and all of that. Um, organize the order of witnesses. Uh, incredibly important. Um, and I know just from practice for many years, and this happens I'm sure to all of you, you have cases where uh, the police say so-and-so is not available to next Wednesday. And so-and-so was actually a key component of the next theme in the way you were unfolding your case. Um, and it's difficult. I think the more senior you get, and I found this uh, happened as I, you know, when I was a deputy senior crime prosecutor at least, I could really tell the police sergeant in charge of a case, I don't want any excuses, I want this witness on Friday at two o'clock. And you know, if they're not there, you'll hear more from me about it. And be, be quite blunt about it. Because um, some witnesses just, it's, this is part of telling the story. It's got to be told in the right order. Um, you know, you can't do your crime scene after you've done the, uh, the medical evidence. It just doesn't work. It has to unfold in a logical way. In the Malat case, uh, Tedeschi was at great pains to order uh, the themes of the trial. I think we broke the 20-plus lever arch files down into 10 themes. Um, and religiously stuck to them because that was the order of the story. It was the best way to explain what had happened. It was going to be a long trial and the jury needed to have it laid out on a plate for them as uh, clearly and as well told as it could possibly be. So even coming down to a simple matter in a magistrate's court, it's very important to get your order of witnesses right. Um, uh, okay, have a conference, put the witness at ease. Um, I once had a, a poisoning case um, where uh, I called a professor of uh, pharmacology uh, from Victoria. On paper, it just looked fantastic. I've never seen anything like it. I thought to myself, if this guy's as good in conference as he is on paper, I'll be amazed. But anyway, he came in, I had a conference with him. He was just amazing. He was articulate. He, he was going to be a fantastic witness. And so I thought, well, I'll put him in the witness box. And I called him, and he just completely went to water. He just did not stick to his statement. Uh, every alternative speculation that the other side put to him was, oh, well, man, I suppose it could have been that. And I'd put all these things to him in conference. You know? So sometimes you just can't see it coming. But I had another case where I also had some poisoning and I had two experts. He was one of them and I, you know, I didn't call him 
I didn't call him, and I told the defense, you can call him if you want to. I'm not going to call him. They didn't want to call him either. Um, and the one I ended up calling was, uh, the poison in this case was methadone. Um, and actually this was the, this was the uh, arson case, the fire case I told you about before, where um, uh, the children had been put to bed by the accused and the Crown's allegation was that he had laced their orange cordial with methadone to make them drowsy and go to sleep so he could do his dirty work. And um, that was our, uh, our case. Um, and I didn't call this guy from Victoria. What I did call was uh, a former heroin addict uh, who happened to be uh, a, uh, a very fine accident and emergency specialist, a physician uh, with that specialty, who had been struck off as a practitioner because of his drug habit uh, many years before. He uh, rehabilitated himself. In fact, he won awards for his uh, work for drug rehabilitation clinics and uh, well recognized in his field as an expert in the effects of drugs. And he was able to say to the jury what methadone was like. He, he could tell them from experience what it was like. So he, he not only had the medical expertise, he also had the actual physical experience of knowing as a former addict the impact of this and how it made you drowsy, how you could be resuscitated from it with Narcan and all the rest. And he was a fantastic witness compared to this other fellow who just went to water. So uh, I think you need to put your witness at ease, make sure you have a rapport with them, an expert witness, and um, also, uh, make sure that they're not going to go to water on you. <laughs> and if you think they are, find somebody else. Um, and it's also a good idea to take your complainant, as I'm sure many of you do, into court the day before. I think your witness assistance services probably do this these days. Um, in the old days, we used to have to do it ourselves, but uh, with witness assistance services, that's something that... Is, is much better done now to put people at ease with, you know, this whole mystery of the court. Um, issues about expert evidence, is your witness qualified? And I mean, not just qualified with the degrees they have, but are they, do they actually know about this particular issue that's relevant to your case? Um, and often you'll find called for one side or the other is an expert who's uh, qualifications may be right, but in fact they've drifted off into some other area of expertise. Like um, I remember one case where uh, uh, the witness had, it was a, um, a, a case about post-traumatic stress disorder, and this witness, when you looked at their CV, although they were a psychiatrist, in fact their entire professional life for many years had been on eating disorders. You know? So yes, they're a psychiatrist, they'll know about post-traumatic stress, but maybe not as well as a psychologist who might have been, uh, you know, offering um, uh, counseling for people with uh, post-traumatic stress for years. Um, so, you know, think about their qualification. Look at the CV. You'll almost always find clues in the CV. And in, in this particular matter, I saw the eating disorder, you know, 
the witness had put every article they'd ever published and three quarters of them were on eating disorders. So you can identify hobby horses of your witness. Uh, that's really important. Um, now, if they're on your side, have a conference with them, establish a dialogue, put them at ease, um, and let them answer the questions. You know, it's sometimes very tempting um, as an advocate to sort of show off, you know, I know all about this now that I've heard what he has to say, and you sort of say, and is it the case that blah, 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 and because they're uh, an expert, you might get away with a bit of leading. Um, let them tell it because, you know, they're the ones with the qualifications. And so just ask them the non-leading question. Let them uh, give the answer. But some experts run away at the mouth. They just keep going. And you've got to know when to stop them. You know, whoa, horsey. <laughs> just a minute. Ask your bite-sized questions. Break it down, particularly complex uh, concepts. One of the best expert witnesses I ever saw um, I'll mention two such witnesses. One was in the Malat case, explaining it was the first time in Australia that mitochondrial DNA uh, was in evidence because the science had just reached that point where it was uh, conclusive, it was reliable, it was um, internationally, had been accepted by uh, the science um, and the, the experts in the field as a, a genuine uh, way of assessing whether somebody um, you know, came from a particular line. And uh, this expert named John Bach in DNA evidence from England came out and gave evidence. And he was asked to explain to the jury how mitochondrial DNA works. And he said, well, you know, I was thinking you were going to ask me that question, he said in his lovely English accent. And he reached into his coat pocket. We didn't know he was going to do this. And he pulled out a string of children's big plastic beads of different colors. And he, then, he said, I just bought these at uh, Kmart today because I thought it might help my explanation to the jury. And then he went and explained, using the colors and the connections, exactly how mitochondrial DNA worked. And it was just a brilliant piece of expert evidence, you know, simplifying it. Um, for the court. Um, the, other, uh, the other expert I want to mention is a guy, I did a uh, baby shaking case uh, many years ago. It was a manslaughter charge. Um, and the allegation was that the baby, who was less than two, uh, had been you know, abused and shaken and died as a result um, in a fit of anger. Uh, and um, the defense case was, well, that's not what happened. What happened was the baby was up on the breakfast table, which was about as high as this table, the tables you're sitting at, about the same height, was standing on the table and fell off. And that that's how all this damage to their you know, retina and all the rest had happened from the fall. And the expert I had was an expert pediatrician, one of the best, uh, in this field, and he said there's no way that baby fell from that table. That could not have happened. That was the crown case, basically. We were going to call this expert. And at about 11.30 at night, the night before I was due to call him to give evidence, he rang me up at home. He said, Dan, I, I'm really embarrassed about this, but um, I 
been in a bit of an agony this afternoon redoing the calculus and I've looked at you know the Newtonian physics, the baby's weight and the height that he's fallen, the force with which his head would have hit the floor and he said I've actually reassessed it and I've come to the conclusion that it's just possible. It's just possible that that's how he died. That wasn't his preferred view but he thought it was just possible that that's how the baby died. Well there went the circumstantial case completely. Then and there Next morning, went into court, told the defense that this was now the expert's evidence and um, invited the judge to enter a verdict by direction, which is what happened. Now, I've forever admired that expert because he had the guts and the, you know, the candor and the fortitude to come forward and say, actually, I've changed my mind. And this is what the expert code of conduct for witnesses uh, requires them to do. Um, but, you know, there'd be some people who would feel locked in and feel that, you know, the lawyers are kind of drawing them to this conclusion that they're not comfortable with. And that can happen. You've got to be careful not to do that. Um, but, you know, I've, I've often told that story because I just think it's a great example of a really good expert doing exactly what they should do. And, uh, you know, because truth is really what matters in these cases. Um, so... Make sure uh, you've got a good dialogue with your expert. Ask to see, uh, ask them to look at the other side's experts' reports um, because that will inform you if they've got ideas about, gee, actually, I don't agree with this because you can cross-examine, uh, use ideas given by your expert for your cross-examination. Um, know the expert code of conduct. Um, are there gaps in the brief? This time and again is a problem. So many experts, are just like us, are time poor. Um, I mean, you know, you send a psychiatrist to go and assess somebody's fitness for trial, and I'm not berating the psychiatrists at all. They do a great job. Um, some of them are just fantastic at it. But usually it's one conference, one meeting out at the jail. Uh, maybe I saw them for 40 minutes, and they've assessed them. And sometimes that's all the assessment you have for a, a mental illness defense. Um, and I remember a case where uh, a, a leading psychiatrist had assessed a fellow for future dangerousness uh, without having been shown uh, the ERISP. And the ERISP um, you know, was critical to see what the person's mood was actually like at the time, closer to the time. So there's often a problem with the brief that the expert's been given. The number of times they haven't seen the heiress and have only seen a transcript is mind-boggling. So just remember, uh, don't um, skimp on what you send your expert. On the other hand, don't overburden them. Don't expect them to do all the sifting. You've got to do that too. Um, now, these are two questions that I've always found helpful in cross-examining an expert, and I recommend them to you. Uh, firstly, was there anything else that would have assisted you or improved the assessment process uh, in helping you to come to your opinion? Now, it's a non-leading question, um, and you can, if you're cross-examining, you can put it in a leading way. Um, but it's a gentle question, and a good expert 
will always think, well, yes, uh, I didn't have the heiress, or yes, I only saw the defendant um, a year and a half after the crime, and you're asking me to assess his mental state a year and a half after the time of the crime. Um, if and almost always something's, something comes out with that question that you can make use of. If they say, no, it was perfect, everything was perfect, then you know, that, that damages their credibility, and they know that, because life doesn't work that way. So it's a good question to ask an expert that you're cross-examining. Um, again, how easy, this is the other question, or difficult was it to come to your opinion? Uh, you wouldn't always ask that, but there are some cases where it's been really difficult for the psychiatrist, for example, to come to an opinion, and that's something you want to tease out uh, if you're cross-examining. Why did it take so long? You know, what were you unsure about? What were the problems with it? Well, you know, it might have been this, it might have been that. It opens all kinds of avenues for cross-examination. Um, so those are just a few hints for expert evidence. This book, uh, John Monkman's The Technique of Advocacy, has anybody seen this? Okay, good. Well, I'm glad I'm telling you about it then. Um, I think, uh, you know, toward, toward the twilight of my career, I think this is the best book on advocacy I've ever seen. Um, it's, uh, it stood the test of time. Its basic precepts are timeless, and that's it. That's the book there. It's tiny, and it's very easy to read, and it's just brilliant. Um, so I don't know. LexisNexis did a reprint in 1991. If you can find a copy, and I'll pass this one around. I want it back. <laughs> um, it's just brilliant. Um, and he just breaks down what, it, what advocacy is all about, um, and particularly cross-examination, um, and gives you some points to begin with and some ideas to work with, and really good examples. A lot of them are from old cases because, um, and this is one of the reasons I uh, wrote this book of uh, Ivan Milat's trial on the cross-examination of Ivan Milat, because it occurred to me that uh, nobody gets to read an entire cross-examination. You know, unless you're in the case, where do you find one? You, know, you go to the appeal court reported cases, and there might be an extract of a bad cross-examination that causes a point of appeal. There's rarely uh, a good cross-examination. And you know, that's not the Court of Appeals, Court of Criminal Appeals job. Um, so, where they all end up is in the archives of, you know, out at Shea, uh, wherever they keep the archives now. It used to be, what was the Shays Creek or something? Um, out in the government archives. And um, they get lost and forgotten. Um, so uh, what a book like Monkman and many other books that you'll find on cross-examination and advocacy have are, you know, famous old pearls from old trials. Um, but uh, you can find more recent trials if you look for them. It's not easy, but you still can find them. Um, but that's what I hoped to do with this book, was to uh, allow people, and the Supreme Court gave us permission, uh, the Crown gave us permission to copyright 
uh, copyright permission to reproduce the whole cross-examination of Ivan Milat uh, so that I could do a running commentary of what was going on. Uh, because it was very instructive. It was, um, you know, Mark Tedeschi was at his absolute finest in that trial. It was just a wonderful uh, professional uh, cross-examination and, and the way he ran that trial was, was very fine indeed. Um, but uh, so that's technique of advocacy is one nugget. If you can find it, if you want to get better at this game, um, treasure that book if you can get it. Could I have the next slide, Mel? Okay, now the four techniques that um, Monkman goes into in considerable detail in cross-examination are probing, insinuating, undermining, and confronting. Um, so, you know, he breaks down cross-examination to these sort of four key techniques. Probing is, where, you know, where you're gently feeling your way around the evidence. You're not exactly sure. You hope you know where you're going. Um, but you've got to establish a few more surrounding facts uh, from the witness. Um, insinuating is when you're uh, effectively trying to suggest that what they're saying, in fact, can be looked at another way. Uh, so you're insinuating that it means something else than what they're maintaining it means. Undermining is... Um, chipping away and showing that, in fact, there are problems with the way they're putting their case. You know, and you're undermining it by uh, your questions or by extrapolating the logic of what they're saying to its absurd conclusion. That's undermining uh, what the witness is saying. And confronting is what you do when you've got a prior inconsistent statement or a an absolute magnificent piece of real evidence that you can put in their face and say, well, have a look at this and, uh, and confront them with it. Usually you do that after you've you know, closed all the gates, you know, the idea of closing all the gates. Um, so there's no way out. And, and you might probe and then insinuate a little bit. Um, and you would usually probe uh, and close the gates before confronting somebody because if you haven't closed the gates, they'll, like water, they'll find the, <laughs> the way out, they'll find the drain to get out. So next one, thanks, Mel. Okay, now the other nugget I wanted to, uh, and this, this has been around for a long time. Has anybody seen this, Irving Younger's Ten Commandments? Okay, if you haven't seen it, you should get hold of it. And I don't think I'll go to the YouTube for this, but um, I can leave behind those references, but um, YouTube now has uh, the lower one of those, I think it is, is the, his entire famous speech. Um, uh, the one that's recorded he gave in Vancouver, the original one was uh, at Cornell University, I think, uh, outside, but, but this other one is the same talk and it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, if I could have the next slide, these are his Ten Commandments. Be brief, short questions, plain words, always ask leading questions. Don't ask a question the answer to which you do not know in advance, um, like our motor mechanics question. Um, listen to the witness's answers. This is really important. It's so easy to miss something. It's, you know, you're thinking, and, and this happens to us all, you're thinking what your next question is going to be. What am I going to ask next? And you're missing the answer the witness is giving. Uh, so what you must develop is that skill to 
do both to uh, listen to the answer and to formulate your next question. Um, now, can I tell you the best way to master that skill is to master the brief. It's to know your brief inside out. Because what that does is it gives to you that freedom and flexibility of uh, thought and you know, thought movement, if you like, so that you immediately know when something doesn't smell right or sound right, it, it, it clangs with what you know is the situation from the, the, the material that you've got. Um, so the more you're immersed in your case, the, the more you're going to find those connections. You're going to be able to say, oh, that answer was bad. And you don't need to think about what your next question is going to be because you know, you're confident enough in your knowledge of the case that you will know the next question once you've heard the, the, the answer. Now, yes, you'll outline, have an outline of where you want to go with a witness, and you might have some dot points uh, in front of you as to where you're going to go. Don't write out each question and each answer. That's, you know, that's a trap for young players that you'll, because then you will not hear the answer and you'll miss the magic of the answer and what it, uh, the opportunities it affords you. So that's key. Listen to the answers. And um, don't, don't quarrel with the witness. Uh, there are lots of examples in the Malat case where um, the witness would throw a question back. Uh, and you, know, you don't answer the witness's question. You, he answers your questions um, when you're cross-examining. Um, don't allow the witness to repeat his direct testimony. Um, that's almost always true. You don't want to just say, well, okay, what, what was your version of events again? You know, <laughs> that's bad. Um, don't permit the witness to explain his answers. Well, sometimes to be fair, you have to. Sometimes you do. But by and large, that's not a bad rule of thumb for cross-examination. Don't ask the one question too many, like in um, my cousin Vinny. Um, and save the ultimate point of your cross for summation. Um, now, there are ways of... Um, I don't entirely agree with the last one of Younger's. I think um, sometimes you can telegraph to the court or the jury um, what, you, uh, what the significance of an answer that's just come out has been by saying, are you sure about that, Mr. Malat? Is that, is that your position on this issue? You know, and that, that telegraphs that uh, that's something you will come to in your closing address, yes, but it also makes the point then and there. Um, and Tedeschi often s would say things like, um, would you please explain for the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Mr. Malat, what blah, 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 you know, why, wh how this can be, how these two inconsistent things can be. Would you please explain that? to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury. That's a way an advocate can say, this is really important. I want the jury and the judge to sit up and listen to this. Um, so I don't think you have to always, you know, you can, by asking questions and the way you ask them, sometimes you can emphasize um, their importance and the importance of the answer. I mean, the answers, of course, are what the evidence is, not the question, but, um, but you can frame a question quite legitimately and properly in a way uh, that makes it very clear that you've really hit upon something important. That's part of the art of advocacy. Next slide, thanks.
Um, there's no one way to cross-examine. You've got to be flexible. Depends on what you're trying to achieve. It depends on, you know, the nature of the witness. It depends on whether you need to cross-examine or not. Don't ever cross-examine somebody if they've done absolutely no damage to your case and there's no need to cross-examine them because they might, you know, in the morning tea at Journey have thought of something they wanted to say and out it comes and, you know, it's harmful. Um, whether you go in high with guns blazing or low and, you know, let's be friends, Mr. Witness. You know, I'm, I'm really here to help you. <laughs> whether you do that, they never believe you when you say that. But, uh, but you know, you can be, you can be a gentle cross-examiner. You can be, if you've got an abundance of material and all you have to do is keep confronting the witness with it, you don't have to get angry at them. It just kind of, the story tells itself. Um, so sometimes you, do, you just can be gentle, almost kindly. Sometimes you have to be insinuating and, you know, very rarely the sort of attack dog kind of aggression. Uh, you know, if you've really got a witness who's just telling whoppers and you can prove it and confront him with things and, uh, you know, you've really got to put them in their place. Sometimes that happens. Attack dog's too strong a word. That's not my normal style, but you know what I mean. All those different styles will depend entirely on who the witness is, the case you have, and the material that you have to work with. Thanks. Um, now, there's a book, an old book that Viscount Malm, I'm sure he's long gone now, wrote uh, on the famous Tichborne claimant case. Uh, and he said this, many a counsel has risen to his feet wishing that the system of cross-examination had never been invented. He must ask something, but what? Many counsel content themselves with asking over and over again a few of the questions which have already been asked, then sitting down, avoiding, if possible, a sigh of relief. We all know that feeling, and it usually happens early on in one's career. And I dare say, I think that desultory sort of cross-examination doesn't happen as much now as it may be used to. I think, you know, there are more advocacy courses, more people are learning the art of advocacy and studying it, and uh, there are more books about it and um, seminars and all the rest. But uh, you know that feeling. You know, where am I going to begin here? Um, which is another reason why it's really important to find time to reflect, to prepare, to prepare your cross-examination. Um, Advocacy is about knowing when to start, when to stop, when to go hard, when to ease off. And uh, I hope in these reflections, in this rather long lecture, that those have been uh, of interest to you. Thank you for being so patient and listening to a pretty long talk. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.